You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. Out of all the holidays associated with the phrase, the holidays, capital T, capital H, I would argue that none is more associated with family drama than Thanksgiving. This year, my mom and my girlfriend's mom are going to meet for the first time at Thanksgiving. And believe it or not, I'm not nervous about it because I know both of these women pretty well. And they're both the type of people who go into this sort of interaction looking for it to go well. You know what I mean? They're not wary evaluators of the opposition or whatever the worst fear version of mom's meeting at Thanksgiving for the first time would be. I love them both very much. And if it goes sideways, I'll tell you about it on a future episode, but I don't think that's going to happen. But what I have been thinking about in advance of the great meeting is how much I've learned over the course of doing this podcast and just getting older as a human that our unique relationships with our parents are just that. And the tendency and temptation to compare our narratives with the narratives of other friends and people in our lives, or worse, people from movies and TV shows, is so toxic and destructive because it can blind you to what's special about the connection that you do have. And for that reason, in advance of the holiday, today on the show, I wanted to feature two stories that are not Thanksgiving stories, but they are stories about moms and the realization that the maternal relationship can only be defined by the idiosyncrasies of the two people that form that relationship, regardless of external circumstances. Telling these stories for you on this episode will be two of my very favorite performers here in New York City, both of whom I had the pleasure of welcoming at Family Ghosts live shows a few years ago. First, Bradford Jordan. From the moment we opened the garage door, people were coming through and just picking through these beanie babies. And my mother knew and I knew that these were not connoisseurs. And then, Ophira Eisenberg. One day, my mother lied about something that was actually fairly dangerous. Actually, we found out that for two years, she was lying about uh, dying for a couple seconds. From WALTFM, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. We'll be right back. I'm 17 years old. I am back from boarding school. I am in Southern California, the Inland Empire, uh, and I'm back home for the summer. And uh, this is a very exciting summer for me because my girlfriend, my girlfriend from England, is going to be visiting me in Southern California, which means I'm probably going to have sex. And uh, when I get home, I go to my bedroom, and what do I find in my bedroom but a mountain of boxes. And these are not anonymous boxes. I know these boxes. I've seen these boxes before. Those boxes used to be in the garage. 
but they're not in the garage because my mom got a new car and now they're in my room. Those boxes are the boxes of my mother's collectibles that now, after having been semi-nomadically transported around the house for years, have landed in my bedroom, which frankly is unacceptable. And so the next day, I find myself in the kitchen, standing across the tile countertop from my mother. And I'm doing the thing that a 17-year-old boy who feels like his mother is an impediment to sex does, which is insult, shame, and make her feel small. Mom, those collectibles are insane. They're childish, they're pointless. It's time to get rid of them. And the thing is, they're, they're not just collectibles. They are primarily Beanie Babies. <laughs> Perhaps you were around for the Beanie Baby craze, but just very quickly, Beanie Babies are essentially small uh, fabric-shaped bears stuffed with beans, um, given a cute name uh, and a little tag on their ear which has a, a poem and uh, they are put out at a periodic uh, and engineered schedule to generate demand and then uh, they are saved and hoarded by people uh, all over the world. My mother had at least one of every single Beanie Baby. She subscribed to Beanie Baby circulars, she read Beanie Baby blogs, she was a Beanie Baby fanatic. And as I was telling her how upset, um, disappointed, uh, disgusted I was by the fact that not only were these boxes in my room, but that she had them at all, she eventually relented. I said, Mom, it's time to get rid of the Beanie Babies. And with a heavy sigh, she said, fine. And so we did what people do in Southern California when they want to liquidate stuff, we had a garage sale. And even from the moment we opened the garage door, people were coming through and just picking through these Beanie Babies. And my mother knew and I knew that these were not connoisseurs. They just wanted a cute bear. And $5, $10, $15 later, they were almost all gone. There was one Beanie Baby that was her favorite. It was a purple bear with a white rose embroidered on her chest. Her name was Princess, and I shit you not, she was released to commemorate the memorial of Diana, Princess of Wales. That was a hard to find Beanie Baby! And as I sold it to someone who would never appreciate it, I saw my mother truly break. They were gone, I was gone, it was over. I wanna share something with you now, which um, is hard for me, uh, and maybe for some of you it would be hard as well, but uh, I want you to know that I'm okay, and you're okay. Okay. Six months after the garage sale, I had started college, and on December 31st, 2001, uh, my mother was approached in her car, uh, carjacked and shot twice in the heart, and she died instantly. Uh, the local police and later the FBI spent about seven years trying to find the guy who did it. And I tried to continue with my life, but seven years later, they called us and they told us that 
they'd found him and they were going to bring him to trial. And so again, I went back to Southern California, uh, and this time to the San Bernardino County Courthouse. And I was there with my, my, my dad and my sister, and we wanted, I wanted to be, I don't know, I wanted to be like a good victim. I didn't know what that meant, but I wanted, I wanted to like do it right. I knew I wasn't gonna wear a button with her face, and I knew I wasn't gonna like pick it for handgun reform, but I wanted to be like a good victim, even though I didn't know what that meant. And in the courtroom, uh, I, I didn't know, I just didn't know how to do, how to do it. <clears throat> the whole thing was so perplexing and alienating. It, it wasn't like it is on TV. There were just like constant procedures and sidebars up at the judge's table and the district attorney was maybe making mistakes but we weren't sure and all the jurors were there and some of them were maybe paying attention but maybe they weren't and there was the defendant and there was the county medical examiner and there were slides with trajectories and things happening and I didn't want to be thinking about that stuff. All I wanted to think about, all I could think about, was my mom. There was a moment uh, during the trial, the DA, his name was Bullock, he was going through these slides in his PowerPoint presentation, and he stopped on a slide, and I think he hadn't meant to, because he wasn't referring to it, but it was just there. And the slide was a picture of the contents of my mother's purse on the day that she died. And I don't know if you like, know what's in your mother's purse, but I had always imagined my mother's purse as like a sort of Mary Poppins-esque bag of just fucking everything because everything she had was stuffed with everything she had. But it was surprisingly spare. Keys, cell phone, wallet and a lot of pictures. And just like she'd done with the Beanie Babies, which she would cover in plastic and hermetically seal and then put in a box, these pictures were in plastic covers, each of them. But unlike those Beanie Babies, the plastic covers were worn and torn and dirtied because this collection was one that she used. This collection was one that she cared about. This collection was pictures of me and my sister and my dad. And they went through the entire history of our family. Uh, you could kind of judge the epic that you were in by the size of my father's mustache. <laughs> sort of like our, our family rings on a, on a tree. <laughs> there were two pictures of me that stood out. They were black and white. And I remembered exactly when they were taken because my mother, who had always wanted me to be an actor, woke me up when I was 11 years old early in the morning and she said to me, Brad, grab two looks from your closet and meet me in the van. And I was like, okay. So I grabbed two looks from my closet and I met her in the van and she drove me to Los Angeles. And she took me to a headshot photographer and that headshot photographer told me that they were Haley Joel Osment's headshot photographer. And there were lots of headshots of Haley Joel Osment and she took a pictures of me and one of the looks was sort of a 90s grunge thing and the other look was a v-neck sweater and my mother said to me you look like robert redford in the great gatsby and i was like i don't know who that is or what that is but i can tell that that's important to you and it was because she kept that picture in her purse ever since 
My mother was a collector. But what I realized as I was looking at those pictures is that the whole Beanie Baby thing, yes, it was a compulsion, but also the Beanie Baby thing was a way of connecting with me. When she started collecting Beanie Babies, half of the fun was going with me in the car from Hallmark store to Hallmark store, seeing if they had the one Beanie Baby that we hadn't collected yet. I remember when we, when we were looking for Princess, we must have gone to 20 stores around the Inland Empire, and when we found her, we were so excited, and we celebrated, and we went to Sizzler, and it was legitimately a great day for us. But the only collection that remained were those pictures, because Beanie Babies aside, the truest collection for her was us. Thank you. My mother, 89 years old currently, she is the foundation of our family. Uh, anyone who has ever met my mother usually describes her with these odd phrases like, they don't make them like that anymore, you know, like she's a vintage car, or she's one tough cookie, like that's the kind of dessert anyone wants. But she is, she epitomizes strength. I mean, strength uh, and fortitude on so many levels. 89 years old, grew up in Holland during World War II, lived in Israel as it became Israel, raised six kids. This woman has seen a lot. And she has this unbelievable um, brute strength as, as well, and internal strength. I was recently with her in um, my brother's basement. He was getting renovation done. It was mostly unfinished. And all of a sudden we heard, and we looked, and there was a dead mouse on the floor beside my mother's foot. <laughs> and she said, it was slow, it must be sick. kind of scary. Uh, and if she is the foundation of our family, the fabric of my family is a shared love of dark humor, of plants, and, uh, and lies. I have come from a family of liars. It is impossible to get a story straight. Yes, you know what I'm talking about. Liars. Uh, you know, and of all sorts. For example, I, I remember for a part of my life, I always heard that my Uncle Louie was blind in one eye from looking at an eclipse. That's what I was told. And then I mentioned that to my cousin. He was like, what are you talking about? No, it's because his friend was playing with a gun and shot him in the eye. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I mentioned that to my mother. She's like, what are you talking about? He was born blind. And then I mentioned that to someone else. They're like, no, 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 he looked at an eclipse. Like, why doesn't anyone have this story? But they all, they all lie. It's like of everything. It's impossible to know what's going on. And I, I excused it for years, my whole life, because I thought, People like grew up, my father and my mother, they were around the war. I mean, that was probably a time of a lot of lying to protect yourself. I do not think the truth set you free. 
uh, and also being immigrants. Uh, I'm sure they lied to fit in or just to control the narrative because they probably didn't feel in control of anything. So, you know, we always dealt with lies and I think we were actually also taught to lie. And then one day my mother lied about something that was actually fairly dangerous. Actually, we found out that for two years she was lying about uh, dying for a couple seconds. You know, just every so often she was dying for a couple seconds. Uh, her heart was going into cardiac arrest for about two seconds and she would black out, uh, but not tell anyone because she didn't really like it. She didn't like that was happening to her. She didn't like that that was threatening her idea of immortality of herself. So she thought, we'll just ignore it. Because <laughs> that's how she dealt with things. And then one day, I imagine it happened in front of someone or in public in a way that she could no longer pretend that it wasn't happening. And she went to a doctor who sent her to a cardiologist. And the next thing we knew, she was given, uh, you know, just she had to get a pacemaker. They were like, her heart's stopping. She needs a lot of medication and to get on a pacemaker. All of my family freaked out because the way a lot of them express worry is through anger. They are a fun fucking bunch. <laughs> and everyone was yelling at her, how could you do this? How could you be so irresponsible? But I think she was the angriest of any of them because now we were all witnesses to the truth and she couldn't control what was going on. So pacemaker operations, even 18 years ago, amazing. Heart operations are truly amazing. Uh, and so it wasn't the operation that was a big deal. It was the fact that for eight weeks afterwards, she was supposed to do nothing that would put her heart under stress. She was supposed to have a low-key lifestyle, no driving, no housework, no gardening. So I am the youngest of six kids. There was all this talk about how we were all going to take turns taking care of her. Uh, and as the youngest, you know, I was waiting for the call of when my week was going to come. But this call never came because I'm the youngest. And then I finally found out from my brother that they were like, oh, you're not able to take care of anything because you're the youngest. <laughs> now, to be fair, being the youngest, if you are, it's fantastic. You get to be the angel. You can do no wrong if you want to go that route. You can do bad things, but hide it, and no one ever thinks that it's you because you have five other people to blame it on. Uh, but also, you get stuck in permanent babydom. You're the baby forever. It doesn't matter how many mortgages you pay or eye cream you buy. You're always the baby. Uh, and it still, it still happens. I'm treated like the baby today in my family. I went home recently, as I was saying, in my brother's basement, and my brother always does this joke with me. He's the worst. He always does this. He always goes, um, hey, Ophira, I just want to remind you, uh, nobody wanted you. You were a mistake. LAUGHTER um, and then I, I mentioned that to my mom, and she was like, don't be ridiculous, you all were mistakes. So, <laughs> so they weren't calling me, and then I called my brother, and I said, I want to take care of mom. And he was like, really? I mean, we just, can you really even take care of yourself? Uh, you know, I was 30 years old at the time. I was living in Toronto, pursuing a uh, stand-up comedy career. It, I, they had a point. <laughs> um, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I, I had just enough money to fly myself to Calgary to help. Uh, and what I didn't have in money or maybe experience taking care of things, uh, I did have a flexible schedule, which not everyone did. 
So I all of a sudden had this agenda. I was like, no, my, I'm going to take care of mom and I'm going to prove to you people that I'm like a responsible adult that can contribute. I wanted to take care of my mother because I was scared. It was my way of having a little control in the narrative. So uh, I flew out to Calgary. Taking care of my mother is no easy task. She sort of lives an artisan lifestyle. Uh, she would be the toast of Brooklyn. Uh, every, every, uh, everything's made from scratch, right? Every meal is made from scratch. The house is scrubbed clean every night. Uh, I'm, I, you know, and scrubbed. I once caught her recently on the floor scrubbing a dark mark furiously. I went down to help her and realized it was a shadow. Okay, my mother was trying to wipe out a shadow. And you know what? She got it out. Uh, there's a garden to tend, there's plants to take care of, there's laundry, you're never allowed to use the dryer, you have to put it out to hang out on the line outside because she is a homesteader living in the suburbs. Uh, technology is for people that don't understand how things are done fucking properly. That's how she sees it. So it was no easy task. I flew home, I walked in, I saw her ready for this task, and she looked smaller. She looked frail. She didn't look like this woman of fortitude I remembered. I hugged her. She said, no, not so hard, it hurts. Uh, and I just dove into the task. Time to do things. Do, do, do. I, I'm going to make you dinner. And I started making her dinner, and she sat beside me criticizing, criticizing, questioning my every move. Oh, you're going to use that pot to make cauliflower? All right. Well, I wouldn't use that one. That onion's too big. I hope you don't think that sink is clean. You're coming back to clean it more later, right? And I knew it was very frustrating. I hated it, but I knew that she was just frustrated that she couldn't do it for herself. By day two, it was wearing pretty thin on me, this whole taking care of my mother thing. And so I needed a break. And so I said, Mom, I'm, can I borrow your car and go to the gym? I, every time I travel, I pack gym clothes. Uh, and then it's awesome because at the end of the trip, I get to take them out of my suitcase, still perfectly folded, never used, and put them back in my drawer. <laughs> but this was going to be different this time. So I, I said, can I borrow your car and, and go to the gym? Borrowing the car was a big deal. She bought a car for herself to celebrate that all the kids had finally left the house. It was probably the biggest ticket item she had ever purchased on her own since my father died. Uh, it was just like a, a secondhand Honda SUV, but she loved that car. It, it had so much value, sentimental and emotional value to her. And she gave me the keys hesitantly, said, do you still remember how to drive? I was like, yes. She was like, okay, take care of my baby. And I was like, I was the baby. <laughs> And I got in the car, SUV stuffed into the uh, one-car garage and turned the key, put in reverse. And, you know, I, I just got in this moment of self-congratulating myself. I was like, I'm, I'm doing great. I'm here. I'm actually taking care of my mother. This is like, I'm taking care of her. It's hard being an adult. It's hard watching your parents age and get sick. And I'm thinking about how wonderful I am and how proud I am of myself as I am backing up. And I hear this like crunching sound, just like a crunching sound. I was like, oh, I must have driven over a tin can, I suppose. Uh, but it keeps going crunching, crunching, crunching. And I'm snapped out of my little moment of how wonderful Ophir is to see that 
oh, I haven't been watching where I'm going at all while I'm backing out this car, and I've ripped off the side mirror of the car, and I'm just bashing it further and further and further into the side of the garage. And I'm not taking my foot off the gas. I'm, I'm going slowly, and it's just crunching more and more and more till I stop and sort of in a state of delusional shock, put the car into drive to drive forward to reverse time, of course, and then it will be done. Of course, that doesn't reverse time, and I, my heart starts racing, so I think, uh, flee. You know, that's my first thought, flee. So I just put it in reverse and just careen out of there. Now it's much easier to back out with all that garbage gone, and I drive to the gym. And as I'm driving, I'm like, oh, my God, she's not, you know, she's not supposed to be put under stress. What's going on? I've wrecked her car. And I'm like, it's fine, it's fine. I'm going to fix it. Oh, new cars, they're like plastic, right? I've, t I've been told you can just go under the undercarriage and, like, push out the dents, right, with your own hands, because they're just crap now. And I was like, I'll do that, and I'll just glue on the side mirror, and I'll buy some silver nail polish, and I'll, like, paint it up. Uh, and I park the car at the gym, and I get out, and I look at the damage, and, you know, it's brutal. <laughs> it's like the side mirrors hang up, there's wires all over the place. It's just hanging on by one little bit of uh, metal. I have, I have scratched all the paint off to the point where you start seeing like copper and black underneath. Uh, and there's a dent so deep in that side of the door, it's like it's almost a puncture. I'm like, holy fuck, what am I going to do? So I go into the gym and I get on the treadmill. Because uh, I'm like, I'm going to work it out while I'm running on the treadmill. And that was like the perfect metaphor. I was trying to run away from my problems and I wasn't getting anywhere. <laughs> and my next thought was, this is easy. Uh, I am going to absolve myself of any responsibility. I'm going to lie. I'm going to lie. Uh, I'm going to say it was a hit and run. I'm going to say I took the car to the gym. I went inside to work out. You know, I'll work out for a little more to get a sweat going, the whole thing, so it's believable. Uh, and then I came back to the car, and holy crap, this is what someone did. What bad luck. Oh, well. You know, I'm sorry. Uh, and I'm thinking, that's perfect. That's perfect. But something about it as I'm piecing together the story sounds so familiar to me. Uh, and that is because... <laughs> I have used it before. I have used it before with my mother the last time when I was in high school trying to get my driver's license and smashed her car. So I'm thinking of another possible lie. Okay, um, you know, maybe it's like uh, something, they're like something backed into me. Now I'm working on like a garbage truck backing in story and it just all falls apart. I think, no, I'm an adult. This is the whole point. I have to tell her the truth. I tell her the truth. She's going to see me as a baby, as a screw up, but she won't know this is going to be the most grown up moment that we've ever had. And I guess we'll find out if that pacemaker works. <laughs> so I drive home practicing this calm speech that I'm going to tell her about how I dented her car. Uh, but I, and I parked the car in front of the house and I come in and she notices that I've parked the car in the front of the house. So the first thing she says to me is, why did you park the car in front of the house? And instead of my calm or her speech, I just start immediately crying and going, I did a bad thing, you know, just a child. And she's like, what happened? And I can see this fire in her eyes. And I explained to her that I wasn't really watching while I was backing out of the garage and I hit the side of it because it was very close. And I see the fire fade into disappointment. Uh, she's just, she cannot believe how, you know, childish I am and how I wasn't looking and I ruined her car. And she's nodding in this way like, uh-huh, yep, these kids, these kids. 
and she goes, well, what are you going to do about it? I was like, okay, I'll start calling around for car dealerships. I call around for a car dealership. We, we get a quote. We drive it together <laughs> to the car dealership to get it fixed. They quote $700. Uh, my mother says, we'll split it because I don't have enough money. It takes about four days for it to get fixed, and that time we take cabs when we need to. And then we go to pick up the car, and we're driving it back. It's fixed. It's pretty miraculous. They are just like plastic. And she goes, listen, Ophira, I know you tried your best, but let's promise something to each other. I'm like, okay. She goes, let's promise to never tell this to your older brother. <laughs> because I might forgive you, but he will never let you live this down which was amazing that even when I was going out to take care of her, she was still taking care of me. And the lie continues. You know, that car is long gone. Uh, her pacemaker is even long gone. It's been changed to a more updated pacemaker. Obviously, my life has expanded. Now I have a child. Uh, but the lies continue. And I think if I ask my mother tomorrow, Mom, remember that Honda SUV that I crashed up and I was so stupid? She would go, no, 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 what are you talking about? It was a hit and run. <laughs> Thank you. Family Ghosts is hosted, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. The stories you heard today were told by Bradford Jordan and Ophira Eisenberg. You can find out more about both of them at the links in the show notes. Our show art is by Teddy Blanks, and our theme song is by Louis Guerra. Family Ghosts would be impossible without the support of the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon, for just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get access to our episodes ad-free, and they get special bonus episodes available only in a private feed. Plus, they provide critical financial support to keep this show going. If you have the means, please consider joining them today at patreon.com familyghosts. And if you don't have the means, no worries. Thank you for listening. And please consider supporting the show for free by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. It will take 30 seconds of your life, and it will make a huge difference in the life of family ghosts. I wish you a very happy Thanksgiving, and if not a happy one, at least an interesting one. And we'll be back in two weeks, right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. <laughs>